From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. At the end of March 2023, so just about a week or so ago, depending on when you're listening, I did an Instagram reel where I talked about early puberty and it blew up hundreds of thousands of views and thousands of comments. This topic perennially hits a nerve with mamas who are concerned about the environmental and social implications of the world that we're raising our girls in and how it can impact their hormonal and reproductive development. So please take this episode in the spirit not of fear-mongering or the sky is falling, but a caring mama to another mama, a midwife and an MD to other practitioners and to mamas, to all who are listening, that we just raise our awareness to the things that we can do starting when our girls are young to help support and protect their reproductive health, their transition into womanhood and their long-term health, because our menstrual cycles are our sixth vital sign, as I talk about in my articles on my website, in other podcasts, in my book, Hormone Intelligence, and in my social media posts. I really want to emphasize that. And so this episode is in the spirit of understanding early puberty as a phenomenon that is happening as an epidemic in our culture, but also the things that we can do to protect our girls' health, their reproductive and hormonal health, starting now at whatever age they are that you're listening, and our boys' health as well. So I hope you find this informative and reassuring and at the same time gives you some tools in your toolbox as a mama, maybe as a healthcare provider, I hope healthcare providers are listening, that we can use to make our girls transition through their life cycles smoother and easier, and also so that we can recognize when early puberty is happening so that we can address it effectively in a non-stigmatizing, really supportive way for our wonderful daughters. When I was in sixth grade at 12 years old, my breasts were more developed than many of the girls in my grade, leading to an enormous amount of unwanted, quote, popularity amongst the boys, titty poking, as they called it, and from men too, in the form of glances or the infamous New York City cat calls I frequently received and found terribly intimidating and even threatening. I wore oversized shirts crossed the street or walked as quickly as possible past construction sites and groups of men, and I tried to be overall less visible because I often felt exposed, embarrassed, and even vulnerable. Likely you too have experienced something like this. Now imagine that instead of 12, 14, or 16 years old when you did, you'd been 8, 9, or 10. 
When I originally wrote the article that formed the foundation of this podcast, it was in 2012, and I described the growing trend toward earlier puberty as a pandemic-level crisis for our daughters. Now, after the COVID-19 pandemic, when I say pandemic, it may seem hyperbolic. And while nothing compares to the COVID crisis we've weathered, I would argue that early puberty is also an urgent crisis, one that has also long consequences and that has remained largely overlooked and ignored by individual physicians and has even been normalized by healthcare agencies. Speaking of pandemics, while this trend toward early puberty started decades ago, we saw a significant international surge in earlier puberty onset during the COVID pandemic. Various studies have shown there's been a roughly doubling of rates of what is formally called precocious puberty compared to the years prior to the pandemic in countries as far-ranging as Turkey, Germany, Italy, and South Korea. As a mom of three daughters, a grandmother, and a women's and children's physician, I'm concerned about our girls' reproductive health, and I'd like to share why that is. In this episode, I'll explore the causes behind the early puberty trend and look at why we need physicians and policymakers to start advocating for our daughters so they are not forced to experience biological entry into womanhood years before their minds and emotions are ready to bear the social consequences. I'll also talk about what you can do to protect your daughters from the factors contributing to early puberty and how to support them through this life stage, no matter when they experience it. In 1978, when I was 12 years old and started to menstruate, I was exactly on the expected curve. Most girls didn't experience menarche, the technical name for our first period, until about 13 years old. Breast development, or TLARC, typically starts a couple of years prior to menstruation and is usually considered the official start of puberty. I was exactly in the norm amongst my girlfriends. The only girl I knew who'd begun menstruating much earlier was one of my best friends who had a diagnosed metabolic problem causing her to be medically obese, a factor which can lead to much higher estrogen levels and thus puberty at an earlier age. She got her first period in my apartment actually on a school holiday when she was nine years old. We figured out how to use one of my mom's menstrual pads by reading the box. It was extremely rare at that time for a girl to begin menstruating this early or even younger than my friend did, for example, by age eight. For years, scientists have disagreed whether early puberty was really an emerging phenomenon. Now there seems to be no doubt. A study in 2007 in the Journal of Adolescent Health sounded the alarm. Puberty was occurring earlier in higher rates. And a study published in the journal Pediatrics in 2011 found that in the United States, 15% of American girls were beginning puberty by age seven. According to a 2010 study, 27% of American girls had entered TLARC by age 8, with the rates highest for black girls, 43%, then Latina girls, 31%, and finally white girls, 18%. The average age for a first period has dropped to, but not quite as dramatically, to about 12 and a half years. There's also been a rise in early puberty among boys, but much less so than among girls. Enter Cotex, which spent $23 million in research and development to target their new young consumer group, Cotex U, in 2011, aimed at girls 8 to 12. Quote, some girls get their periods as young as 8, end quote, begins a section for mothers on the Cotex U brand site, with period products emblazoned with hearts and stars, as if to say this is normal, 
and we can make your experience cute. And yes, it's true that girls do need products that support their unique needs experiencing puberty at this young age. But it's not enough to unquestioningly meet a consumer need. We need to look at the underlying factors that are pushing our girls into puberty earlier than ever. And we need to figure out how to support and protect these girls far beyond giving them the Hello Kitty equivalent of period products. While many doctors chalk the declining age of puberty up to a new normal and dismiss that it is a problem for most girls, in fact, there's a tension between those who are normalizing it and saying for most girls it's not representative of a medical problem, and those like myself who feel that the increasing prevalence of early puberty and at such a young age should be garnering significant attention from physicians and policymakers, if not all out raising alarm bells. It is a troubling sign that something is affecting our daughter's endocrine or hormonal systems. Even as recently as a decade ago, if you were to ask pediatricians why there's an early puberty epidemic, if they were even aware of the problem, most would probably have shrugged and said, we don't know why. And I know this to be true because I asked. But gradually, research has identified three main explanations for the trend, greater exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals, high levels of stress, and increasing rates of obesity. There are also some underlying medical problems that can cause early puberty, such as congenital adrenal hyperplasia, disorders of the gonads, ovaries and girls, testes and boys, or adrenal glands, McCune-Albright syndrome, or hormone-secreting tumors. But these are exceptionally rare. The same factors that are causing increased hormonal and metabolic problems in adult women are not, unsurprisingly, showing up in our children's health. Our daughters, and our sons too, are unwittingly the canaries in our social and ecological coal mine. They're getting hormonally hothoused. And while this is happening in all populations, Black and Latina girls are at highest risk of developing premature puberty and are at highest risk of all the related medical complications and social ramifications. This is an economic, ecological, and racial justice issue. Let's talk about these three known contributing factors that are not that rare, starting with endocrine-disrupting chemicals, or EDCs. EDCs are agricultural, industrial, and other chemicals that mimic estrogen and other hormones in the body, and as such, are associated with a broad range of hormonal and gynecologic conditions, including early puberty, polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, fertility problems, metabolic problems, obesity, thyroid problems, reproductive cancers, and more. Numerous EDCs wend their way into our bodies on a daily basis from the time we're conceived and throughout our reproductive lives and accumulate over time. They are in our air, soil, and water and are used in flame retardant fabrics, cosmetics, plastics, pesticides, detergent, and other common household and industrial products. It also doesn't take much exposure to EDCs to cause health effects. It's very difficult to prove a causal effect of individual EDCs on the timing of puberty, since all of us have constant low-level exposures to a mixture of these kinds of chemicals. But studies have found associations between early puberty and a range of EDCs, including BPA, DTA, and phthalates. For example, a 2012 study supported by the CDC linked a solvent used in some mothballs and solid blocks of toilet bowl deodorizers and air fresheners to early menstruation. They found it in the bodies of nearly all the people tested in the U.S. 
Interestingly, some EDCs are also associated with a later age of puberty or delayed menarche, or with an earlier onset of puberty, but slower progression through all the stages. Researchers suggest that these chemicals may have differing effects depending on the exact timing of the exposure, whether it's during the prenatal period, infancy, early childhood, or right before puberty. Let's turn our attention to stress. Stress itself can act as an endocrine disruptor. Puberty typically begins in girls when the pituitary gland starts secreting hormones known as gonadotropins, which in turn cause the ovaries to grow and produce estrogen. At the same time, they undergo a parallel process called adrenarch, or the awakening of the adrenal gland, which provokes the development of pubic and underarm hair and underarm odor. It's thought that the higher cortisol levels from chronic stress may trigger the premature activation of the pituitary and adrenal glands. Girls are suffering from stress starting at earlier ages than ever. Inadequate sleep, school pressures, stress at home, peer pressure, social media, sexual assault, and bullying are just a few of the major stressors to which our girls are regularly exposed and which have increased in the past decade, some of which increased further during the height of the COVID pandemic and may have an impact on the timing of the onset of puberty. Now we're going to talk about something a little bit more controversial, obesity. I want to make something abundantly clear at the outset of this discussion. I firmly encourage body positivity. I do not support fat shaming, and I do not abide by cultural standards around thinness in my medical practice or any of my work with women and children. We can be healthy in a wide range of weights. But rates of early puberty have risen alongside rising rates of obesity. About 20% or more of U.S. kids are currently obese, which is medically different from being overweight. And the rate of obesity has tripled in the last 30 years. It was further worsened by the COVID pandemic. Body fat is thought to promote early puberty because fat tissue releases a hormone called leptin, which is necessary for the pituitary gland to begin producing gonadotropins. That's the same reason some very thin girls and women don't menstruate. They don't have enough fat tissue to make leptin. It's difficult to separate out the role obesity plays in early puberty from the role of endocrine-disrupting chemicals and stress, though, because exposure to EDCs and chronic stress are themselves risk factors for obesity. And there are some vicious cycles at play. Because EDCs are stored in fat, they may pose even more of a problem for overweight girls. And at the same time that stress can make us fatter, being fat-shamed for being overweight itself is very stressful. It's important to avoid making our daughters self-conscious about their weight, while also it's important to teach them about best food choices, healthy serving sizes, and the importance of getting exercise. We can teach our daughters the healthiest possible habits from the earliest years without giving them food phobias and eating disorders. This means also walking our talk by modeling these habits ourselves and focusing on the habits themselves, not fixating or even mentioning body weight or fat. So what explains the spike in early puberty during the COVID pandemic? The reasons remain unclear, but speculatively include greater stress, an increase in sedentary lifestyles leading to weight gain in children during the lockdown, and an increase in the use of electronic devices. Screen time may either be an independent risk factor or possibly related to its association with increased sedentary behavior. It could also have an effect by disrupting sleep and circadian rhythms. 
A drop in melatonin activates an increase in a protein called kispeptin, which was one of the triggers for puberty. As parents, we need to be aware of these trends because even if your daughter isn't showing signs of early puberty, she's likely still being exposed to the factors that cause it, and that can affect her hormones in other ways. For example, endocrine disruption can increase our daughter's risks of hormonally related conditions and hormonally related cancers later in life. So why is early puberty even a concern? On a population level, the declining age of puberty is an indication of troubling trends in our environments and not something I think should be normalized. But does that mean if a girl enters puberty earlier than average, it's necessarily cause for concern? That's more complicated. Certainly having your period in first or second grade or your breasts develop in kindergarten, first or second grade, well before most of your peers, really sucks for all the obvious social and emotional reasons. And studies have linked early puberty to a wide range of health risks later in life, including obesity, type 2 diabetes, breast cancer, anxiety, depression, and eating disorders. It also increases a girl's risk of sexual harassment and abuse, early sexual involvement, and risk-taking behaviors. A girl who is physically more mature might be seen as, and potentially act as, more sexually mature than she is psychologically and emotionally. But it's hard to disentangle whether these are risks caused by early puberty itself or from the stigma and often otherwise unwelcome sexual attention that comes with it. As pediatric endocrinologist Louise Greenspan said in a recent piece in The New Yorker, we know that people who have menarche earlier do tend to have a higher rate of depression. But we don't know if that's a biological thing or a social thing. Is it the biological effects of estrogen on the developing brain? Or is it the stress of looking older than your peers and having to deal with that? I also want to emphasize that not all scientists feel that the data on early ages for puberty are completely accurate, and some also caution against doomsdaying. While I do feel there's enough evidence to warrant concern and more diligent research, I do agree that we don't want to panic our daughters. The important thing is to do what we can to take appropriate steps to support and protect our girls should they show signs of early puberty and to mitigate risks of early puberty as part of an overall healthy lifestyle, as I'll discuss. It should be noted that the age of puberty has always been variable across individual girls. A girl may be entirely hormonally healthy and begin to show puberty younger than the historically typical nine years and above. The age at which we enter puberty may also be somewhat matrilineally heritable. Our age of puberty is often similar to our mother's or maternal grandmother's, though not always. But when girls show the following signs of puberty younger than age eight, it may be a sign of early puberty. These include height greater than most of their peers, the appearance of underarm and pubic hair called adrenarch, underarm odor, breast development, and menstruation early, usually typically two to three years after they show the signs I've just mentioned. Should a girl experience these signs, even prior to the onset of menstruation, simple tests can be done by her pediatrician or a family doctor to determine whether in fact she's entering early puberty, including tests to measure sex hormones, estrogen, testosterone, 
and progesterone levels, and x-rays to determine bone age, which is important to measure because one of the risks of early puberty is the early cessation of bone growth, limiting potential height. While there are no safe, effective natural therapies that I know of that can reverse early puberty, it may be appropriate to halt early puberty with puberty-blocking medications to prevent bone growth and other physical consequences while allowing our girls time to mature in other ways as well. And this is something to discuss with your child's doctor. Let's talk about the steps you can take to help prevent early puberty. While government agencies, medical organizations, and industry need to tackle the factors contributing to early puberty on a global scale, we can and must help prevent or mitigate the factors that can lead to early puberty through the choices we make and teach our daughters to make those choices as well. Here's an overview of actionable steps that you can take at home. The first is to reduce exposure to environmental estrogens. This includes avoiding flame retardant products, which I talk about in another podcast and article on my website. Encourage your preteen girls to avoid cosmetics, and if they're going to use them, teach them to go natural. It may be a little more expensive in the short run, but the health price tag is much lower over time. You can see the Environmental Working Group's Skin Deep website for information on safe cosmetic options. It's a really easy to use website where they have a one to 10 rating system and you can look up almost any product on the market and see where it falls in that one to 10. And you can make it a regular and fun practice to review these with your daughter and help her order and find healthier cosmetic products that she can use. And that includes body products, lotions, sunscreen, shampoos, and all of her other cosmetics. Get your daughters using a glass water bottle. One company I love and have no financial relationship to is called Life Factory. They make them in really bright colors, a variety of sizes with plain and even sippy and straw tops. They're dishwasher safe and virtually indestructible. I've had mine for about 15 years. I'm not kidding, the same one. I've even dropped it in two parking lots on my way into residency rotations. And all of my daughters have them and I've gotten them for my grandkids. Encourage your daughter to avoid drinking out of plastic water bottles whenever possible because there are measurable amounts of phthalates and other chemicals in our daughter's blood. This has been studied when they're drinking out of water bottles and using these conventional cosmetics. Along the same lines, Avoid plastic-wrapped foods and plastic food containers for reheating and storing hot foods as much as possible. Phthalates and other chemicals in the plastics that are used to soften the plastic and make it malleable actually transfer to the food and act as endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Eat organic whenever possible, especially your dairy and meat products, because these accumulate environmental contaminants more than other food products. And they're also more likely to accumulate hormones and antibiotics used in the production process. The Environmental Working Group also has a wonderful section where you can look up food safety. And one of their primary resources is called the Clean 15 and Dirty Dozen. And they update this list every year. The Dirty Dozen are the must-avoid, if not organic, list, and the Clean 15 are the ones that you can feel confident using conventional foods. So if you are on a super tight budget and you can't afford the organic, lean into the Clean 15 and just avoid those Dirty Dozen when they're not organic and just 
That's like a really simple way to go when you're deciding about produce. And also remember to switch to ecologically friendly cleaning products at home, and especially ones that are unscented. Believe it or not, when you smell these artificial fragrances, those are phthalates that act as endocrine disrupting chemicals. And even breathing in the scent can bind to receptors in our body and trigger hormonal changes. Another thing that we want to all do, probably for ourselves just as much as for our daughters, is help our daughters to be stress-proofed, right? We need to be stress-proofed, but we also need to help our daughters be stress-proofed. So teach your daughter to get help from a teacher and come to you or a really trusted adult if there are peer stressors at school or bullying. Encourage your daughter to join a school or after-school sport dance class, or other physical activity, which is enjoyable to her. Not only is the exercise great, but being involved in sports classes and dance classes has been shown to be emotionally and mentally protective of girls, less drug use, less teen pregnancy. The benefits are amazing. Reduce exposure to TV violence, to shows which sexualize girls and women, and be really mindful of social media use. As I talked about in an Instagram reel not too long ago, we have seen an absolute lockstep trend in increase in sadness, depression, anxiety, and even suicidal attempts in our girls commensurate with the increased use of social media. So don't feel bad being a bit of a mama policewoman around your girl's social media use. Teach simple meditation or relaxation skills to be done at bedtime, before exams, or in stressful situations. One simple breathing technique that I love and use and teach my patients who are teens and young girls is on the inhale to the count of four, you say, I am, and you're saying it in your head like you're inhaling, I am, and on the exhale, also to the count of four or to the count of eight, if you want to have a longer exhale, at peace, and you repeat that four times in a row. I am at peace. So inhale four, exhale four. Another simple thing is to just teach them to count to 10, but using deep breathing with it to make a real difference. And learn about and teach resilience tools to your daughter. It's a gift that will last a lifetime. We also want to encourage healthy eating and exercise, but in ways that are just part of healthy lifestyle not stigmatization. And it's really important to realize that it's not just what we're feeding our daughters at home. They are up against a behemoth beast of a food industry that wants to get our kids from the earliest ages addicted to sugar and to soda and to fast processed foods. When I worked at a medical clinic where we had a large population that was at very high risk for obesity. And I'm talking about we had an eight-month-old baby who weighed 50 pounds. We had a three-year-old who weighed over 100 pounds. The biggest intervention that we found to make a difference in keeping kids healthy on so many levels, but also helping reverse this obesity trend was cutting out soda, all soda, period but even fruit juice. Shockingly, a lot of fruit juices and even like a natural fruit juice can have as many grams of sugar in a drink as a soda. So water is the healthiest beverage. They can have water, sparkling water, 
naturally flavored sparkling water, but really teach them to enjoy water as their primary beverage. Emphasize a plant-based whole foods diet with healthy portions without being restrictive or ever stigmatizing about food. Do your best to reduce, especially at home, white bread, white pasta, and white rice and processed foods like that. And instead, emphasize good quality proteins, whole grains, and vegetables as the mainstay of their diets. And then provide healthy treat options and teach them what healthy treat options are that they can choose from. Reduce the amount of TV watching by half and adding exercise will make this even more effective. Now, I talked about TV earlier from a psycho-emotional perspective, but part of why our kids aren't getting up and moving around is because they're sitting in front of the TV for so many hours a day. So really, again, it's your role as a parent to feel confident and supported and with permission to say no to cultural habits that aren't healthy. Finding ways to do that in a way that doesn't make your child feel, of course, left out, but at the same time, explaining to them and sharing the values of why there are certain things you just don't actually do at home. And make sure you're doing all of these things yourself because our kids model what they see far more than what we say. I really want to emphasize that we need to prevent stigma and teach our daughters about their bodies and their health and self-love. So if your daughter is entering puberty much earlier than her peers for whatever reason, it's all the more important to talk with her about what's going on and help her feel comfortable in her changing body and her changing self-perception. It's critical to not stigmatize, pathologize, or in any way contribute to a sense of her being abnormal, including when it comes to medical visits and assessments for early puberty if needed. Have those conversations with the physician or the nurse practitioner out of earshot and then explain what you need to explain. And you can talk about why you're going to get these things evaluated, but do it from a positive, supportive perspective. Not like, oh, there's something wrong with you. This shouldn't be happening. This puts you at risk. We don't need to explain all that. And it may not even be true for your daughter if she's going through this. And while the social consequences should not be missed, and we need to be alert and aware of those, we also need to address those in a way that supports her health and safety while simultaneously not introducing or exacerbating any social anxiety or fear that she may be experiencing. So how do we talk to our girls about safety in public and safety around their bodies. It's the same conversation that we want to have with any of our daughters, but it becomes really incumbent on us if our girls are developing breasts at a really young age because they're even more vulnerable to attention and advances that we don't want them to have. We have to take the stigma out of puberty in general so we can talk openly with our daughters and help them feel confident in their bodies no matter what their age. So let's start talking with our daughters today and asking them questions about how they're feeling and what they're going through and teach them to take care of themselves. And let's take care of ourselves in ways that model self-love, self-care, and best health so they can emerge into womanhood confident and without the preventable risks of long-term emotional and health problems that in some cases, though not all, 
can be associated with early puberty or just being female in our culture. Thank you for listening. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.